Um, it, is, it is honestly just such an honor to um, study and to get into the text. I feel like on your behalf, on my behalf, just it just is such a privilege. And so I've, I felt that way. Well, I was studying this um, passage in, in Mark, and it is the night of Jesus' arrest and the trial um, and then Peter's denial. And this, this part of the story isn't always easy to like jump into. And although we know that the Bible is God-breathed and is useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness, and although we have the gift of the Holy Spirit in Revelation, and we can study and read and get into context and culture as much as we can, many of us have this very limited experience about what it would have been like to live in Jerusalem or in Galilee 2,000 years ago. And as we open up the book of Mark, we have this uh, very little personal experience regarding what what it would have looked like that night. Jesus was arrested and tried and beaten. And we have little experience what it would have been like to be Peter out in the courtyard, just a short distance away from his friend, his best friend Jesus, as he's being beaten. And in in the introduction to the message translation of the Bible, Eugene Peterson writes this beautiful statement that the word of God is both written about us and it is written to us. And as I entered the text this week, I was wondering, like, why does this specific story matter? And what does it mean for us today? And I wondered and prayed about what this story might reveal to us about Jesus and how in this, this moment in time where Peter denies that he knows Jesus in the courtyard, how does that inform how we live today, a few thousand years later? And that's where I entered the text. So if you'll pray with me before we get started. God, thank you for the revelation of your Holy Spirit. And thank you for the words that have been penned and inspired. I pray that you would open up our hearts and our minds to see you more clearly. And in turn, I hope that we see ourselves more clearly. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we pick up this morning, finishing the 14th chapter of Mark, and we're going to continue on this pattern that we have seen over the last few weeks of contrast. And a few weeks ago, Dave Johnson taught on the contrast between Judas and Peter, both trying to pay their way into the grace of God. Judas was full of remorse from his betrayal of Jesus, and he's unable to receive or accept the gift of God's grace. And he paid for it by taking his own life. And then over here, you got Peter, full of remorse at his betrayal of Jesus, which is our text that we're going to be in this morning. But he's eventually able to receive the grace that was available to him, and then he is restored. These things are in contrast. Judas and Peter, one set up next to the other. And last week, Dave and Tom talked about the dynamic and the authority of power, the clash of two kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world, and how differently they operate, one set up next to the other. There's a contrast. So today, we'll jump into the text in the final verses at the end of Mark chapter 14, and we've got Jesus and Peter. And Jesus and Peter are both having a coinciding experience 
at the house of the high priest. They're not doing the exact same thing, but they're both at the house. They're both being interrogated. They're both revealing their identity, who they are. And Mark cues this in on us because he uses a literary technique towards the end of chapter 14 called a flashback. And on purpose, he sets these two experiences up one next to the other. So we are supposed to, by author intent, see these texts together. And at the very end of the text from last week, Jesus is on trial and the religious leaders have blindfolded him and they're beating him with their fists and they're spitting on him and they're shouting, prophesy. And the irony of all ironies is that at the same time as they are shouting for Jesus to prophesy, the prediction and the prophecy that Jesus told Peter that he would deny him three times before the rooster crowed twice is coming true just steps away right outside the courtyard. So let's jump into Mark 14, 66 through 72. While Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You also were with that Nazarene Jesus, she said, but he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about, he said, and went out into the entryway. When the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing around, this fellow is one of them. Again, he denied it. After a little while, those standing near Peter said, surely you are one of them, you are a Galilean. And he began to call down curses and he swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. Immediately the rooster crowed the second time, And then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. And he broke down and wept. So in the first first denial, at Caiaphas' house, which is a long walk from the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter is approached by, by this servant girl of the high priest. And the way she approaches him is clearly she's trying to embarrass him and to implicate him with Jesus. So this, this is not like a small town, this is not like small talk conversation. And he engages her with one of my favorite new terms that I learned a while back where I studied Jesus' response to religious leaders in the temple court in this artful way that questions would be asked as part of what they termed the rabbinical rules of debate. And here Peter's response falls right into those rules. And it would have been obvious to anybody that could hear him that his response was an official legal denial. <clears throat> like if someone, if someone came up to you and said, like picture us back, you know, 2,000 years ago, and they were like, did you steal my tunic? And if you didn't steal the tunic, you would say, I don't know or understand what you're talking about. And that is how you officially, legally denied it. And I was thinking, I feel like toddlers are super good at this one. <laughs> like, did you color on your sister? I don't know or understand what you're talking about. <laughs> it's, an official, it's an official legal denial according to Jewish custom. 
And after he denies that he was with Jesus, he leaves that spot like you would, changes positions, trying to get away from any unwanted attention that he is experiencing right now. And even though he moves out into the entryway, she finds him again. And then she starts to get the crowd involved. And every time he opens his mouth, his accent is giving him away. And they pick, on, pick up on it right away that he is not from around there, but he is from Galilee. And this reminded me of when my husband and I lived in Louisiana, in, in Lafayette, Louisiana. Um, we were first married and I worked at Starbucks. Um, and in no time, not surprising, people could tell that I was not from Louisiana. Um, and I, I actually had one person pinpoint me to central Minnesota. That's all. Um, so it was, it was crazy, but it, it's like that. Peter's accent gives him away immediately. They're like, you are not from Jer- Jerusalem, you are from Galilee. And in verse 71, Peter, he begins to call down curses and he swore to them, I don't know this man that you're talking about. And this statement is intentionally left without a subject. So he is cursing himself if he's lying or he's cursing everybody around them if they don't leave him alone and implying that he's with Jesus. So it's, this is about as strong of language as you possibly could use in this day to deny that you knew this person or deny whatever. And Peter doesn't even use Jesus' name in his response because he's ashamed to be... Um, to be with Jesus. And so over the course of this single evening, we've seen Peter following, blurting, sleeping, cutting ears off, fleeing, coming back, and here he is, following Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. And it's like you can see him getting a little more wild and weak as the night goes on, but he's not broken. And you can hear this, these words that he spoke earlier, like even if everybody falls away, I will not. And I will die with you. And it's still like we're still, there's a glimmer of hope that even though he's botched a few things recently, his promise to remain and die with Jesus, there's still a possibility. And that's why he stays in such close proximity to the action and chaos because there's still potential for him to fulfill the promise to be with Jesus till the end so he can prove that he was not just all talk. But it is not looking good for Peter. And he is a bit of a train wreck as we see this story come to an end. And I love Peter. And so this is really painful how this one goes down. But it says in verse 72, immediately the rooster crowed the second time. And then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows twice, he will disown me three times. And then he broke down and wept. And we see Peter break. And we see him weep, horrified at the moment that he has disowned Jesus. Like, could you even imagine the moment with all the emotions just running at the same time, what he would have felt like just breaking him down. And in this text from last week, in this contrast, one next to the other, Jesus handles his trial and his questions differently. He is silent and admits the false testimonies that they're saying about Jesus 
and the bogus things that they're trying to accuse him of. He does identify himself as the Messiah, the son of God, and he implicates himself with God. And the crowd goes wild and not the good kind of wild. And then he places himself in the hands of sinners and is beaten. And we see Jesus able to maintain his integrity at the cost of his own life. Then we see Peter losing his integrity to save his life. And these two trials are in contrast, clearly. And there's some really obvious differences, but my question is why? Why would Mark want us to see these two things in contrast, one next to the other, and why are they set up like that? Are they in contrast so they can see how much better Jesus is at life than Peter? Or how much better we are than Peter? Or how three years with Jesus face to face telling you everything won't ensure that you are spiritually situated for whatever life throws at you? Are we supposed to see these things together so that we never do this? Or is there even a way to safeguard yourself from not making the same mistake as Peter and never deny Jesus? I have so many questions. <laughs> and I don't have nearly as many answers as I do questions. And also, why are we always faced with Peter and the disciples screwing up and falling short? And I wondered if it's because we're supposed to fall short. And I wondered if it's because we are supposed to screw up. I wondered if we are supposed to see Jesus in contrast to us. And we are supposed to see that Jesus can do what we cannot. I.e. save the world. <laughs> And many of us see our humanity and our limitation as a liability rather than a gift. And we're frustrated when we don't have the energy or the ability to do all the things that we want. And sometimes the expectations that we put on ourselves to make it through life without mistakes and the amount of shame and disappointment that we feel when we mess up I just wondered. Robert Mulholland, the author of one of my favorite books on spiritual formation, and if you're new to spiritual formation, I would highly recommend this book. It's called Invitation to a Journey. He says that there are two fundamental ways of being human in the world. Trusting in your human resources and abilities or radically trusting in God. And one of the gifts of scripture is to reveal to us that we are human, that we are not God, and that we can actually trust him. That we are creation, that we are not creator, that we are redeemed, we are not the redeemer, and we are actually in desperate need of Jesus. So, just to gain a little more context here, I'm gonna pop back to Mark 8 at one of uh, Peter's, yet another one of his not so 
bright and shiny moments. In Mark 8, 31, it says, Jesus, and he began to teach that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that they must be killed, that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this and Peter takes him aside and begins to rebuke Jesus. I know, can you? (laughs) But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter, get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. And what Jesus says here has a lot more meaning when we put it in context with what's happening in the courtyard at his denial. And he he says to Peter, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but is merely human concerns. And I think this opens up a little window into what I see as the why behind Peter's denial. And we're gonna like hop through that window and dig around a bit. Um, Because like, how does this actually happen? Because there are things that are like explicit, clearly said and obvious, like this is chaotic, these guys haven't slept that much, it's crazy, and I can't imagine the level of fear having grown up under Roman rule. But there's definitely some things that are going on here that are more implicit or hidden. Because it's a bit unnerving to me that Peter could be so intimately close to Jesus, traveling miles and miles and eating dinners and laughing and joking and just having him blow your mind, sharing experiences with Jesus and watching miracles. And then in the chaos of a few hours, you claim that you don't even know him. Not only do you not know him, but you pretend to not even understand what everybody is talking about. And in Mark 8, Peter tells Jesus very directly, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. And then Jesus kicks open the window and paints the picture of true discipleship and the way of the cross, not just to Peter, not just to the disciples, but to the whole crowd. And in verse 34, he says, then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. And I, I, I believe that this is kind of the, the crux or the, the meat and potatoes of this part of the why behind the denial. In verse 35, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? And these words are big. And honestly, this is, this is one of the hard sayings of Jesus and it is not something that you can like quickly and easily apply to life. And sometimes I think I get it, but I haven't always known what this meant or, or how do I live this one out? But in studying the denial Peter's denial of Jesus in Mark 14, these words in Mark 8 have come to, come to life in a new way for me. 
And uh, Henry Nouwen said that we wrap our life around three lies that we tell ourselves about who we are. One is that I am what I have. Two is I am what I do. And three, I am what other people say or think of me. And this, this is sort of an iteration of what Jesus was tempted by Satan in the wilderness. But now one says that we build our false self around this, apart from God, around these lies that become what we think is our identity. And they often tell us a louder story than the one that God tells us about who we are. That you're enough, that you are human, and that that is good, and that you are loved. Instead, our possessions or lack thereof validate us. Our successes or lack thereof define us. And whatever reputation that you have in the eyes of other people becomes way more important than the reputation or than what God says about you. In these slippery little lies, uh, sometimes in the slightest of ways, show up early in life. And then we start to build on them and they grow and they grow until they feel like this is who we are. We are what we have. We are what we do and we are what people say and think about us. And I've got a little um, Katie origin story for us about how I got screwed up at the beginning. Would you like to hear it? <laughs> um, okay, rewind, I'm in eighth grade, okay? I got cut from the softball team. I walk up to the sign that was outside the coach's door and I realized that my name was not on the sign. So I went to his office and let him know that he you know, left me off. Um, and he told me that he didn't leave me off, but that I did actually not in fact make the team with every single one of my friends. Because, and he told me this, because I was too goofy and I didn't take things seriously. He told me that because I brought a basketball to softball practice and stuck it under my shirt to act like I was pregnant, this is, I, this is very specific, but this is true. <laughs> and I ran around the bases backwards, which is, I know, shocking that this is what I would do in eighth grade. Um, but that he, he wanted, he cut me to make a point to everyone that was around that he was running a serious program. This is so funny. I didn't, it's not really that close anymore, but apparently it is. Um, and he wouldn't, he, he wouldn't tolerate goofiness like that. And I actually ran into him a few years ago and he was like, hey, I wanted to, do you remember that one time when I was like, oh, you mean when you ruined my life? <laughs> but I was like, yeah, yeah, I remember that. I think he said like, I don't know if you remember this, but I was like, oh, you have no idea. Um, but he apologized to me and he said that was one of the, he, he was a teacher and a coach. And he said that was one of the re biggest regrets that I've ever had coaching was to pick you out like that and cut you. And I, and I was just being myself. Um, it was my first experience where I realized that I could be eliminated from something by just being me. 
And so this narrative started in my head that played for a long time and it still plays. It's not as loud, but that I'm lazy, that I'm too goofy, that I'm stupid, that I'm not serious. And these messages start to deeply affect and inform my life going forward. And they, they shape me very deeply ingrained. And I assume that if you spent enough time pondering these three lies that I think Henry Nouwen just hit, hits right on the head, that you could also come up with some kind of narrative that has shaped your life that actually feels like it's very true about you, but it is in fact not. It is not who you are. And for some reason, for some crazy reason, we choose to oftentimes protect that part of life, the part that is not even true about who we are. And one of the earliest fears that I had of speaking here at Open Door in front of all of you all these years later, 20, 30 years later, I was terrified, honestly, that you would find out how dumb I was. So this fueled my desire to read and read and read and read so that I could present myself in a way. And it, I mean, it is, it's not all bad. Like I gained a lot of knowledge for myself, but it for sure, for me, it was to give myself a buffer and to safeguard me from looking like an idiot in front of you. And now I'm like, Whatever, I don't care that I look like an idiot in front of you. And that is, that is a huge, huge growing edge for me. This life wrapped around a lie that I am what people say about me is the kind of life that I think Jesus is inviting me and us to lose. For him, for freedom and for the sake of the gospel. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their very soul? And for me, this denial of Peter's started to hit way closer to home. And it it didn't feel like this was 2,000 years ago in a courtyard of a high priest that I I didn't really know how to engage And then I started, it just led me on to start wondering like, how have I been blowing past my human limitations and acting less and less human and more and more invincible and making choices and decisions on how other people might perceive me wanting to prove my worth and usefulness, which is not all bad stuff. It's, it, it is literally the human condition but there is so much more to the life of discipleship that Jesus invites us into. And in nearly every other circumstance over the last three years that Peter has been following Jesus, he has traded up. From a fisherman to a disciple, from low social standing to being chosen by a rabbi, from being no one to being known by crowds, from being nothing to being something. And this life that has started to develop for Peter without the suffering and without the cross is the life that Peter is trying to save. Because his life traveling with Jesus has taken on a new meaning and new validation and new importance. And he was all in for following the Messiah who was going up and to the right. And then Peter didn't even want to be associated with Jesus by the end. 
ashamed to even say his name. He denied his best friend to gain the whole world, to keep that life, and yet he forfeited his own soul and he breaks down and he weeps. And so much of this journey with Jesus is about letting go. And I think there is so much more in this text to interpret. Um, and I, I'm, I'm not even totally sure that I'm making sense. But this feels so much more tangible for me. And I'm super grateful to have bumped up against this text just before I head out on some rest. Because the way of Jesus often looks really hard. But the second you bump into it, it is like water. It is like water to your soul and it is freedom. And it can feel scary to let go of some of these false self patterns. To some of the lies that we tell ourselves about who we think we are. But on the other side of it is this gracious God for the sake of him and for the sake of the gospel, you can fall into his arms and you can believe that he's gonna catch you. And more than hanging on to false stories of our lives and the way we position ourselves to be validated or perceived or affirmed, affirmed, I, I personally wanna live more lightly. And I hope you too, I hope you do too. And that might mean that some of the life that you're hanging on to about what you have, what you do, and what people say about you, the things that we, I don't know why we so desperately try to save to our own detriment, and so often at the cost of our own selves or our own families or our own people. This is what Jesus is inviting us to lose, that life. For him. In Luke's account, um, in Acts of Peter and John, we see Peter back in front of the Sanhedrin where he, you know, he was in front, Jesus was in front of the Sanhedrin, he was in the court of the high priest, and we see him back at the Sanhedrin. He shows up real differently. Acts 4 says, This is Peter and John talking. Salvation is found in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. And when they saw the courage of Peter and John, they realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men and they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. And then Peter and John reply, which is right in God's eyes to listen to you? or to listen to God, you be the judge. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. That is his do over in front of the Sanhedrin. Shedding that life, empowered by the spirit, transformed by failure and experiences, these disciples keep going and they display courage. Unschooled, ordinary, people took note that they had been with Jesus And there is no denying it, as we have traveled with Peter, that Peter is in the process of transformation. And it seems to me that he has let go and lost that life, or he is in the process of losing it, at least in part. 
the one that he worked so desperately that night to save. And our vision statement um, that Dave talked about earlier is to be a community of people radically committed to spiritual formation for the sake of others. And that simply is the process of becoming more like Jesus together. Not becoming Jesus, but by becoming more like him, by practicing his always available presence in the way that he lived our everyday life. And we see that as a radical commitment. A commitment to that that has the ability to affect and change the very fundamental nature of how we see God, ourselves, and others. And these practices like prayer and silence and solitude and Sabbath and community and simplicity and hospitality and being with Jesus Practices like these help us to to put us into a posture or position of listening and to help us slow down and open us up to God. These are ways that can help us become more self-reflective, more able to let go, inviting the Holy Spirit to reveal to us the places and patterns of our lives that are in need of freedom and a way to live this life more lightly. And over time, these practices help us to interrupt some of the narratives that we believe about ourselves and some of the things that are untrue. And we begin to see God in ourselves more clearly. These two trials stand in contrast to one another, partly because we're supposed to see us next to Jesus. Him doing only what he can do in us dependently following, in our humanity, the only way that we really can. Falling short, making mistakes, being reminded that Jesus is God and we are not, and being invited to let go and live life with Jesus. And we should take note here Because with all that Peter experienced and all the things that he declared, it did not actually guarantee his fidelity to Jesus, his faithfulness, his loyalty, and his support. And this this really should, I hope, throw up a warning flag for us. And it should encourage us. Because we eventually see that Jesus treats Peter so incredibly loving and he specifically goes and seeks him out, seeks him out, seeks him out and restores him. And Jesus never once gives up on Peter. And it's a beautiful thing. So I'm gonna invite the worship team to come up. And I still, I still, am, taken, I still am taken aback as I've, as I've studied Peter about the, the authenticity and the honesty that he shares because he's the one that would have repeated these stories over and over again, feeding them to Mark. And Mark recorded this account of Jesus in a unique way, written to Christian believers in Rome that would have been tempted every single day to adopt a culture of power and value and success, possession and reputation. And it was written to encourage them to hold fast to Jesus and to live out the way of his kingdom on earth. And although Mark wrote this about 
and to a Roman audience. It is just as significant about us and to us today. Even if, even if we have to do a little bit of work to navigate the distance and years and miles apart from this. <clears throat> and so we're gonna, as we do, um, sing as response. And I hope, um, I, I love this song. Sarah picked this out. We, we talked about it a little bit, but this, it's called the creed. I believe it's, it's this repeated over and over and over again. I believe in God our Father. I believed in Christ the Son. I believe in the Holy Spirit, all three in one. And I think that it's just this beautiful repetition that Peter needed and that we needed, that we need to just say who God is. And we're reminded that we are not him. And we can just like totally rest in that. That should, if you know you are, it's that you're gonna screw up and that you're gonna make mistakes and you know that he is God, I hope just for a moment that that space in between that feels really beautiful to you and it's possible. So as we sing out, words alone are not enough, but I believe that we can experience the presence of God as we sing and we can sing out words and we can remind ourselves over and over about who God is. And that's a really, really, really wonderful thing. And so we're gonna do that together this morning.